like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you All right, welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, we'll be looking at uh, part three. uh, This will be the third episode uh, of my coverage of of Philip Dick's 1969 novel, Galactic Pot Healer. Um, As I said before, this is my favorite of his novels, and I think it's his his best and his most important for for us in in our day and age. Um, So where we left off, uh, Joe Fernwright has left his bleak existence on Earth um, in a fairly well described, from a fairly well described world in which there's very little freedom. Everyone's sort of on the dole. There, there's no purpose in life, largely because of a, of, of a world in which work has been eradicated due to technology and automation and, and mass industri- the mass mass consumers and all these things. Uh, most people live on the dole and just make do playing word games and, and other kind of ways to pass the time. Um, he gets the call from Glimmon to help him on a great project, the raising of Held Scala on Plowman's planet. He agrees to go, and after some adventures, finally gets there with the rest of the the people who have been recruited from all over the universe for this project. In Chapter 8, where I left off, Glimmon had made his grand appearance before all of his his assistants and all the people who have been recruited for the project, but he appears in his form of, his real form, 40,000 ton entity, and he destroys much of the hotel. Um, so that's uh, that's where we left off. Um, now in chapter 9, and we'll look at chapters 9 through 12 today, uh, we we have a lot in this section discussing the, one of the core themes of the book, which is which is kind of fate versus well, just the, how we respond to fate, right? How how we deal with that. And Glennon talks about this a lot in chapter nine after he recovers from destroying much of of the hotel. He speaks about fate and the cycles of of life and the inevitability of death and how one faces this. Now, one thing that has has become known to the helpers is um, that that it's likely that Glimmon will fail in his effort to raise Held Scala, the thing they've all been brought for. And the reason they think this is because there's a book on this planet created by a, a group of people called the Kalends, Kalends, K-A-L-E-N-D. And they write this book, and it's a, it's a kind of a book that develops over time. It's always being rewritten and reissued day by day. And it even predicts the future. And it's presented as kind of the infallible truth. It's, it's essentially fate, essentially a symbol of, of fate. And Glimmon responds to this, to the group, and he says, When I'm depressed, I begin to think about the Book of the Calends, and I think that their predictions that I cannot read Hellskull is true. That, in fact, I can accomplish nothing. The cathedral will remain on the bottom of Mir Nostrum into eternity. But Glimmon thinks that something has changed, and the thing that has changed is, is the people he's brought around him, uh, what kind of the Gestalt project. Is something that changes. And he talks about his own kind of cycles of strength and weakness. And this will come up later in the novel, too. 
says, the rhythm of living is as active in me as in any of you. I am larger, I am older, I can do many things that none of you even collectively can. But there are times when the sun is low and the sky towards evening before true night. Small lights come on here and there, but they are a long way off from me. Where I dwell, there is no light. I could, of course, manufacture light. This, of course, is changed now that you have come to me. This group together is a final group. Miss Molly Yojas and Mr. Fernwright and Mr. Baldwin and those with them are the last who will be coming. So he feels that this presence of this group of people can forestall fate, can be the challenge to the Kalins and their, their Glim predictions. Now, nevertheless, the Kalins are predicting failure, but Glimmin just says there, there's hope. All the Kalins can do is, is kind of posit statistical probabilities. They're like the precogs in Ubik and some of the other novels that Dick wrote, where the precogs, they see many futures and they just choose the most likely future as the, as the one that's going to happen. But this doesn't mean it's the only possible future, right? And he, again, he says, we are talking about chances, about possibilities, statistical probabilities. It may work, it may not. I don't claim to know. I'm only hoping. I have no certainty of the future, nor does anyone else, including the Kalins. That's the basis of my prior position and my intent. So partially what he wants to do is to challenge the entire idea of a of fate. And by doing that, really to dethrone the Kalins from their position. If he can raise Scala, in addition to the other things he wants to do with that, save the lives of these people, give them meaning in life, uh, kind of fight against the form destroyer. The, the, the form destroyer is a common theme in Dick's fiction, and it comes up more and more in his later works. It's just essentially entropy. It's a thing that, that pushes things towards destruction and disorder. And it, when it gets its name, it's this form destroyer name. Right? Sometimes it's just like Kipple or entropy or, or other concepts, but it, it's there, especially in his later work. So he's going to challenge that too, but at the heart of it, he's going to dethrone the Kalins by doing something that they predict he cannot do to show them as flawed. And he ultimately makes a, a, the case to the group that if you want to go, you can. I'm not forcing you to stay, but there's nothing for you out there. And this is one of the most beautiful uh, lines that Clement says in the entire book. And there's some really great moments uh, that Clement has here. He says, he, he says, this is on page 88 of the Mariner edition. Any of you who wish to return to your own world are free to do so. I will provide passage first class back. But those of you who do go back, you will find it like once as it was. And as it was, you cannot live such a life. Each of you intended to destroy yourself. And were in the process of doing so when I found you. Remember, that is what lies behind you. Don't make it that which lies ahead of you. And that is so critical for us, right? It's this ability to envision a future that's different and act towards it, right? And and that's a challenge to fate, to, to say that that future is something that I can strive for, that's something I can articulate and make real, right? And it's not we're not just caught in old patterns. We're not in an eternal return. We're not in, we're not, we're not faded, right? It's, it's not what about what comes behind us. It's, it's, what, it's what, what is ahead of us. And I think that's a really, um, important theme of this book. It's also a reminder, and we, we know so much about where Fernwright comes from. We don't know so much about where the others come from, but we know that Molly Yojez tried to kill herself. We assume other characters were in equally bleak places when they decided to join up with with the Glimmon. So they all kind of grumble and but decide to stay because they really have nowhere else to go. And they, they, they have conversations among, amongst the groups. And one well, a handful of them begin to talk about Faust. And Faust is going to be a metaphor for Glimmon, or Glimmon's going to be a metaphor for Faust. 
throughout much of the later half of, of the story. Basically, the, this Promethean spirit, this, this one is going to challenge fate and challenge the gods. Um, the point, though, is that Faust always dies in these, these stories. The Faust of... And in fact, one of the people, it's one of these creatures, these non-humanoid creatures, is, is, uh, says, Glimmon resembles Faust in all respects, the Faust at least of Goethe, which is the version I adhere to. Well, um, they, 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 end up wa they end up going, I think they take like cars or something, but some kind of vehicle to closer to the site. They've been staying in the hotel, but that hotel has been basically destroyed. So they're going to go to the, to the, to the coast near the Mir Nordstrom where this Heldskala dwells. And near there, there's a whole kind of camp set up for them with like geodesic dome apartment buildings and workshops and things. And, and there's even like robots there who will serve them and. Um, for instance, uh, Joe gets a, a robot called Willis that will be kind of his servant robot for much of the, the, the story. They're actually quite amazing apartments and they shock Joe, who's used to living in these like one room con apps, right? That, that maybe like they change their function from a bedroom to a, to a kitchen based on your need. But the idea of having like a three room apartment is pretty amazing to him and him and Molly move into window one together. But the most amazing thing for Joe Fernwright comes when Willis takes him to his work site, which is like a whole kind of the a perfect pot healing laboratory, essentially, with kilns and all the tools he needs. And it's it's just amazed at, at he's just amazed at what he sees. And it's like all of his his wishes for his life are coming true when he sees this this lab. He sees what Glim is able to provide for him. This is going to be the space in which he can have a life's work with some meaning. And the most important thing is there's already work for him, right? For the first time in six months, he actually has a pod in front of him that he can heal. Quote, already a number of broken pots have been brought in. A pile of filled protective cartons had accumulated in the incoming engine of the bench. I could start now, he realized. And all I have to do is flip a half dozen switches and I'm in business. Tempting. He walked over to the rack of heat needles, took one down and held it. Well balanced, he decided. Quality product, the best. And that's it. So he's off to the races in terms of his... Um, his his hopes to revive his 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 life's work his work can begin, um, but uh, just to kind of throw a, a bit of damper on his party, a calendar arrives with a copy of of the book. I don't think we get very good descriptions of the calendar. Uh, here's how it's described in chapter nine: a black figure, like a negative of life itself, stood facing him. It had been watching him, and now that it faced him, he thought it would go away, but it remained. He waited a little longer. And it still remained. So that's a calend. Willis explains to him that it is a, a calend. Oh, by the way, with Willis, there's a bit of a running joke that you can't just ask the robot to do something. You always have to preface it with Willis, you know, and then, then the statement. So he's often forced to repeat himself, his demands, even in moments of crisis. Like this one, when he runs into a calend. Um, even when he asks him, like, what's that thing? Willis says, you have to say Willis first, and then he says, okay, Willis, what is that? And then is able to explain what it is. That's just a, a little joke about a, a, you know, kind of a cranky robot. The, the Willis robot is kind of a bit fascinating because it's also an author. It's a bit of a scholar. It, it's able to provide a lot of information. It's not a, like a malevolent machine like we see in some of his other works, but it's, it does have a bit of its own mind, and it, and it has a bit of creativity in the world. Um, more than just a mindless servant.
So, um, chapter 10, Joe wants to call Glimmond uh, to help him deal with the fact that there's a calend in his room and he, or his, his, his office and he doesn't know what to do with it. But he actually is told that, I think he calls up, but no, Willis tells him that you can't call Glimmond because he's in a sleep cycle now. And of course he thinks, well, now what would I have to do? Do I have to kill it or what can I do about it? And Willis can't really help him about it. There, He says there's no existing record of anyone doing anything about Catalans. Do you have any resources further? And, you know, he's trying to find out if, you know, what he should do about this. And anyways, all the Catalan wants to do is show him the book and show him a passage on there. Again, the Catalans are trying to dissuade Glimmond and his the people around him from pursuing this project by showing that it will fail. And the text that he highlights is, that which Joe Furwright finds in the second cathedral will cause him to kill Glimmond, and in doing so, for, halt forever the raising of Held Scala. Right? So this throws a wrench in it, that the reason why the, the raising of Held Scala will fail has something to do directly with Joe, something Joe will find in, you know, below, under the water, and it's something that will lead to the death of, of Glimmond. And that's really all the Callan wanted to, to reveal. His immediate thought, though, in response to this, is he's got to go below water and find out what this is, right? He's got to get a, a hold of the get a hold of the situation. He, he meditates on this a little bit, though. He says, "What would Glimmon recommend? Perhaps that should decide it. If Glimmon wanted him to go underwater and inspect the sunken cathedral, he would do it. If not, then not." Odd, he thought that my first reaction would be to want to go underwater, as if I can't wait to make my discovery. Now, this is how fate works, right? Where when we were told after the fact that what happened to us was inevitable. That, that's one way we sometimes read fate, right? We meet someone, we fall in love with them, we think, we read backwards that it, must, it was fated to happen, right? Another way is kind of like the fortune telling problem where the fortune teller tells us that you'll meet the love of your life today at, at a coffee shop, right? Well, of course, the first thing you do is go to a coffee shop and look around for someone and, and try to talk to people you know, and try to get a date or something, right? You you make that happen, right? Or as if the fortune teller says, you'll get divorced after having two kids. And if that really happens, I mean, how much of it was your choices to pursue the path that fate, so-called fate, laid out for us? And how much of it was was really pre-preordained? There's really no way of knowing the, the, the difference. And it seems here, as soon as Joe hears that this is the future, he wants to go to pursue it. Now, Glimmon does contact him. He gets a call from uh, Glimmon's personal secretary, Hilda Reese is her name. And, and it's just a note that although Glimmon's sleeping, he knows what's going on. And he just says, tells Joe not to go, you know, to the cathedral right away, wait for someone to go with him. He's not saying don't go. He's just saying wait for someone to go, go with you. And it's presented basically as an order. So Joe um, asks Willis what he's going to find under the water. What's, his, what's he going to find, you know, if he goes down to where Health Scala is and investigate. And basically what's down there is a world only of decay. I, there's something almost Lovecraftian in this description of, of water. Of course, Lovecraft had this real anxiety, it seemed, about water. Water was always a place of, of kind of, and not always decay necessarily, but weird life at least, right? Dangers and... You know, Cthulhu is below the sea. The deep ones are down there. Um, you know, just the, the water as something kind of a, a center of, of all that's evil and bad. It's, that theme kind of runs through this book, right? The whole goal is to raise Helskala to land where 
it won't be subject to the process of decay. Here we're told that water is really all you find, or decay is all you find underwater. This is what Willis says. You will find terrible decay down there, decay which you can't imagine. The underwater world in which Helskala lies is a place of dead things, a place where everything rots and falls into despair and ruin. That is why Glimmon intends to raise the cathedral. He is unable to endure it down there, unless will you be able to. Neither will you be able to. Wait till you, he goes underwater with you. Wait a few days. Heal the pots in your workshop and forget about going below. Glimmon calls it the aquatic subworld, and he's right. It's a world made up of our own self, separate entirely from ours, with its own wretched laws under which everyone must decline into rubbish. The world dominated by a force of unyielding entropy and nothing else where even those with enormous strength such as Glimmon become vitiated and lose their power in the end. It's an oceanic grave and will kill all of us unless a cathedral can be raised. So the, the, the water here then becomes a whole symbol for entropy, right? And along with entropy is despair and these other philoptic themes. Despair is, of course, the three, one of the three stigmatas, but that's tied up with fate and, and entropy, which, of course, are themselves tied together very closely, right? Because... You know, that is something we're, that's going to happen to us, right? We're going to die and decay. You know, even Willis says here, no structure, even an artificial one, enjoys the process of entropy. It's the ultimate fate of everything, and everything resists it. Right? So Glimmon is then kind of a, a, a warrior for this, this force in the universe that's trying to fight against entropy, fighting against the kipple, that's trying to restore the world so this tension between kind of the creative the promethean force and then the, on the other side the the form destroying force so he go he, he even goes to the water anyways but he's interrupted by molly who has been ordered by glimmon to accompany he, him as he tries to wander so he's the one that glimmon told him she's the one that glimmon told him to wait for and she seems to know a lot about the situation on Pomwin's planet. She's, of course, been here before. She's more in the know, and she, she becomes a bit of an exposition force in the, in the novel. And she she defines, or actually, I think it's actually Willis who first brings up to this idea that it's not just, in general, a space of entropy. There seems to be a, a conflict between deities below the water, not Glimmon, necessarily, but other deities that go back farther in the planet's history. And the robot, Willis, defines the aquatic subworld as the place that Amalita has forgotten, basically the place where she doesn't exist. And Mali explains that Amalita is the god for whom the cathedral was built, the god who was worshipped in Hilskala. And that somehow the, when the cathedral is restored, this will restore the cult of Amalita, all right? But the opposite force, and every god, of course, needs an opposite force, especially in these kind of dualistic worlds that, that Dick's playing with, you know, especially in this novel, where there's this kind of form-destroying versus the Promethean spirit. Um, the the, the form-destroying deity is called Borel, right? And he exists down there in below the water, right? Molly goes so far as to suggest that actually Glimmon is essentially working with Amalita, or Amalita is working through Glimmon to restore restore the, the cathedral. So there's a bit of sexual taboo in this convert in in this dualism as well. Amalita is is the male, actually. So Amalita is the male, Borel is the female. And Amalita actually created Borel as an ex for an expression of sexual love. 
right? This is how Willis explains. And Willis has written a whole like book, a pamphlet on these gods. So he, he's able to uh, expound on these with, with quite, quite a lot of ease. Um, so he says, as is well known, the most enjoyable form of sexual love is that which pertains to incest, insomuch as incest is a fundamental taboo throughout the universe. The greater the taboo, the more sheer excitement. Hence, Amalita created his sister Boral. The next most exciting aspect of sexual love is love for someone evil, someone who, if you didn't love them, you would abominate them. So Amalita caused his sister to be evil. She began at once to tear down everything which he had over the centuries built. So that's uh, a little bit of the theology in the backdrop here. Uh, Joe and Molly end up asking about Christianity and where that fits into this. And actually Willis is able to expound on that as well, saying that uh, agape or caritas, these, this, uh, essentially this, these Christian concepts of, of communal uh, solidarity. But he defines as worry. You know, he says that the, the true meaning of this word is worry, which is kind of a, just another word for empathy in this sense. And there's not much more said about Christianity, but it's interesting that it kind of throws in in Christianity. Basically, I think Joe was interested. Like, if you know so much about religion, tell me about what you know about Christ and Christianity. And he has some things um, to say about it. Now, the fact that the robot Willis knows so much leads Joe to question whether the robot is not essentially a Kellen, part on the Kellen side, right? Anyone who writes down all this stuff with the goal of kind of predicting the future, which of course is a lot of scholarship and a lot of science, you know, is essentially functioning as a, as a Kellen. And this, um, this, the robot kind of deflects by saying, well, he wants us to be a freelance writer. He doesn't want to work for the Kellens and write the book. Now, they're about ready to go down into underwater, but there's one more interesting story that's told in this, this fascinating chapter, chapter 10. And this is that Joe talks about a story. And this refers back, actually, to a story that Glimmon was talking about, which was a spider who, who makes his web, and that's his life, right? And the story there, the point of that story was that even these, these little tiny life forms have, have a purpose, and have some meaning, right? It kind of refers back to themes we saw in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, of the importance of the of the meaning of life, even for these little entities. But in this case, it's where work becomes kind of futile, and that there's really, it's, it's kind of goes back to the theme of fate. And the story is a dead spider found in a cup, right? And the dead spider is surrounded by this web it made. So the idea here is that the spider gets caught in this cup, in a cupboard, where there's no, not going to be any insects or bugs flying around, and it makes this web, and it just waits there, and eventually it dies. And Joe Fernwright finds this such a, um, a horrible tragedy, and he's talking about it with Willis. And here's what he says. He says, when I found it, saw it dead in the cupboard with its meager, hopeless web, I thought it never had a chance. No flies would ever come along, even if it had waited forever. It waited until it died. It tried to make the best of circumstances, but it was hopeless. I always wondered, how did it, did it know it was hopeless? Did it weave its web knowing there was no use? And the robot just says, little tragedy of life, billions of them unnoticed every day, except that God notices, at least according to my pamphlet. 
But the fact that Joe had this empathy for the spider leads us back then to this concept of caritas and, and the worry, right? The way it's framed here is as worry. But essentially, it's, it's, the, it's empathy. So that's it. That's chapter 10. And uh, in, the, in the next chapter, they're going to go um, scuba diving, essentially. They get their equipment ready and go under. So let's jump into that. So chapter 11 begins with their preparations to go underwater, their different devices that they need to communicate and talk and, and, and explore underwater. Uh, they, they do speak a little bit more on, on some of these issues of faith, especially Glimmon's relationship to, to prophecy. The prophecy, of course, being that whatever Joe finds down here is going to lead to the death of, of Glimmon. And so why would Glimmon let him down at all? Obviously, Glimmon has the power to kill him or stop him, but he doesn't do this. And this is something that bothers both Joe Fernright and, and Nali Yojes. But it seems it's, it's just a bigger part of, of Glimmon's desire to really counteract fate or to prove that what's written in the Callan's book is not fact, right? It's not the only path forward. It's only one of, it may be the most probable future, but it's not the only one. Now they see the body of what they take to be a glimmon, and or at least Joe takes to be a glimmon, and then Molly explains that it's actually a black glimmon. It's like the opposite, right? There's a dualism, like there's two gods, there's two glimmons, and later we're going to learn there's two cathedrals. There's not just held scholar, there's actually a, a black cathedral too underwater. So why two? Why does there have to be two of these things? Well, it just comes down to the same kind of dualism that everything that has a form destroyer needs kind of the creating creative force alongside of it, right? It's described here almost in biological terms that they evolved this way, paired together. Uh, this is what Molly says. They're mutually exclusive antagonistic entities, or if you prefer properties. Yes, properties like chemical combinations. You see, the black lemon is not precisely alive, and yet they're not biochemically inert either like malformed crystals with the form-destroying principle motivating them. Tropic specifically as regards their matching glimmon. And some say it's not limited to glimmon. Some say, you know, that's it. So basically the idea is that the species glimmon, which of course has evolved to be almost like a godlike entity on this world, um, develop, evolve in pairs where there's this, this opposite side to it. Then they come ac across, they're still underwater, they come across the body, the corpse of Joe, right? Molly tries to explain that, that time's kind of out of joint down here and things don't really work as they do on the surface, so it doesn't mean it's, it's him. Now, of course, one aspect of fate that is unavoidable, right, is death, this, this kind of being towards death. And, and a big part of the story is how we deal with that aspect. So it's not surprising that we're given the corpse of, of, of Joe. And it, it wants to talk to Joe and it is able to say something um, almost like telepathically, it seems that it's, it's talking to Joe. But it, they, have, they go into this long conversation with each other. Joe and his dead future self, I guess, or some kind of reflection of his, his, his fate as a, as a corpse. Of course, below water, we've been told many times, this is, this is the realm of the form destroyer. So of course Joe as a as a corpse will be will will appear here. And even they even get into this issue of whether it's the future or not, and, and I think Molly explains that you know it's not really the future time doesn't really exist down there in the same way it does on the surface. Molly tries to says it this way. The distinction isn't really complete between the two of you. Some of it is merged in you, some of it remains in you. 
They are both you, you are both them. The child is the father to the man, remember, and the man is father to the corpse. But I thought it would say to you to go away, but instead it, he, it wants you to remain. That's what he swam up to tell you. I don't understand. This can't be your black in the sense that I was explaining anyhow. It's badly decayed, but it's benign. The blacks are never benign. Never benign. So it's not the equivalent. It's not like the black glimmer, right? It's actually um, um, it's essentially a representation of his fate. Um, now he says though that the, the that he can sleep. This aspect of him can sleep once Heldskala is raised, right? So again, it's like accomplishing this goal, this great project, doing this great thing, and restoring some kind of. I don't know if it's restoring a balance, but but turning the pendulum back to the creative force, away from the form-destroying force, will give Joe that meaning of life to confront this being towards death. At least that's how I read this this passage and the pleads of the of the corpse to to strive for the raising of Heldskala to not turn his back on the project. Now the chapter ends with a little bit of a conversation about. Uh, the logistics of raising Heldskala. Um, Mali is, of course, in, involved in that aspect of it. Joe's the pot healer, right? He's going to be fixing pots. That's his contribution to the project. But a lot of other people are like engineers. You know, they're, they're as skilled in dredging. And Mali is like one of those. So they talk a little bit about the logistics of how to raise this cathedral. And while they're talking about this, Joe sees a second cathedral underwater. Not just Heldskala, but, but another one. So there's two of them. And so one of these is the Black Cathedral. It's like the Black Lemon and the Black Cathedral, the, the, the anti-Heldskala, if you will. It's just called the Black Cathedral in the book. And this leads us to chapter 12. Um, now, Molly wants them to leave and go up, but he gets drawn by his craft. Essentially, the Black Cathedral uses Joe's craft to draw him in. And, and the way he does it is with a beautiful pot that needs to be fixed. That needs to be restored and it's just its skill its beauty it, its technique all amaze him and you know and it's it, it he can't help but be drawn to it and try to seize it and he is drawn to it it's, it's all got like it's all stuck in coral and he's able to kind of draw it loose he can't quite see all of it now because it is encrusted with coral but it's a beautiful pot. Molly asks, is a good pot? And he says it's superb. The red glaze is probably from reduced copper. And it goes into other technical aspects of it. But we see here Joe just being drawn in by his, his kindled desire to pursue his craft. Right? So this is, it's almost a trap. Now, as he studies it, he finds that there's various panels on the pot. Like a story. Like almost like a Grecian urn, you know, how they'll have the different stories um, along at different panels telling a story so uh, the first panel i'm just reading from the book the first panel showed a man seated alone in a bleak and empty room the next in interstellar spacecraft of commercial design the third showed a man evidently the same man fishing it showed him lifting a huge black fish out of the water and this is where the black gaze which molly objected to came in the enormous fish the next panel he could not see coral blocked the view so he's able to find a worker on the coral and see the rest of, of it. In fact, I think he, the, the pot breaks up, but he's able to kind of grab some of the pieces of the pot and he finds in those the rest of the story, the last two panels. And here's what they say. The, so there's two more panels left. The first panel showed a great black fish swallowing the man who had caught it. The second and final panel revealed the fish once again. This time it devoured an absorbent glimmer, or rather 
the glimmon, both the man and glimmon disappeared down the throat of the fish to be decomposed within the stomach. The man and the glimmon ceased. Only the great black fish remained. It engulfed all. End quote. So obviously this is like the story of Joseph Fernwright, right? And, and what's been foretold in prophecy that he'll go down here. That's fishing, right? The metaphor for fishing. And as a result of that will be the death of the glimmon. Right? Now, even more than that, we actually get like a talk bubble here. And you, you kind of have the image of like a, of a Grecian urn here, that kind of story. But it adds like this talk bubble like in a comic book. And it gives a message straight to Joseph. It says, life on this planet is underwater, not on land. Do not get involved with that fake, fat fake calling himself Glimmon. The depths draw from the earth and within those depths the real Glimmon can be found. This has been a public service announcement. Right, so this is a warning to him to, to really not get in, involved in this whole project. So is this the pot, is this pot what the book predicted you would find that would lead him to, to the death of the Glimmon? Is it the second black cathedral? You know, is it Joe's dead corpse? Is it the black Glimmon? What is it that Joe finds that's going to lead him to, to kill the Glimmon? So anyways, he gives up. They go back to the... They leave the water. They go back to the installation where his workbench is. Willis is there. He's just complaining about what was on the radio. You know, like, like life hasn't changed that much. And then Glimmon arrives. And he, of course, scolds Joe for going down there. And he first he says, like, whatever the pot says is a lie. There's lying pots down there. You can't trust them. So just ignore whatever the pot says. Again, Glimmon is always standing up for kind of human freedom in the face of fate, right? And you can't, you can't just let what's been written down direct your, your actions. You have to kind of pursue things for their own merit. Um, but he does say, though, that... Well, he claims that he could have risen, he could have raised Skull all, all by himself all along... Um, but he's been kind of biding his time. But now that by Joel going down there, he's kind of alerted these, the Black Lemon and the Black Cathedral of his presence and the goals, and therefore his hand has been forced. And so he, well, he came as a bird, right, to, to talk to them. And then he flies off and goes towards the water, and just then something rises from the sea. And, and that's where we'll end this episode. That thing rising from the sea is the Black Glimmon, who's come to fight the Glimmon. And, and that we'll see how that ends up in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, the, the final part of, of the novel. So a lot of philosophy in this part of the book, a lot about uh, fate and how we deal with this. Um, a lot of different examples of fate, the fate of death, the fate of, of you know, what's been written and predicted in texts. Prophecy has been posited here as a type of fate. We've also seen a lot about the dualism, a lot of dualisms in, the, in these chapters, especially between the Amalita and Borel, the two gods of the planet. And then when we get below the surface, we see the Black Glimmon versus, you know, the, the Good Glimmon, the two cathedrals, uh, the dead and living Joe, the good pot, bad pot almost. I, I don't know. Glimmon seems to think the pots have a bit of an evil mind of their own here. The trickster pots that, that that dwell below the waters. We also have a little bit of a return to the themes we 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 saw in Duandra's Dream of Electric Sheep, like how one can have empathy for the little creatures, the little beings that just kind of live in their 
do their little existence and suffer, you know, billions of, of these unspoken quiet tragedies throughout life. Throughout that's just how nature nature is. So certainly a lot to think about in this in this section. But I guess that's it. Um, I'll, I'll have a lot more to say about Galactic Pod Hero when we finish up in the next episode. I'll, I'll look at the final chapters of Galactic Pod Hero and give my final thoughts about this book and then go over some of, of the major themes of the story. But in the meantime, please leave your comments about Galactic Pod Hero below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and I'll see you next time with my final, the final part of my review of Galactic Pod Hero. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.